Hello and welcome to the Motorsport Magazine podcast. Today we're going to look at the season so far in Formula One. So joining me today, I'm Jack Phillips, digital editor, is Mark Hughes, Grand Prix editor, uh, Simon Aaron, features editor, and on debut we've got Rob Ladbrook, who is production editor. So let's, we've got one hour until the builders next door interrupt things. So let's get straight in. Um, good season, bad season, Mark? Um, mixed, but um, it's had some special moments, yeah, and some um, very unexpected twists and turns. Um, but yeah, is, is, as ever, some things um, clearly could still do with some work to um, to improve the show. And you guys agree, the most comp- competitive season for quite a while, I'd say. Certainly, in, in terms of the hybrid era, I think um, we've had twelve races now. Uh, Red Bull have won three, and then. What's the, what's the split between, is it 5-4 Mercedes and the others? Yeah, well, uh, the interesting thing is is how it's been split because um, I think it was J- James Allison at Merck was pointing out that it's, it's something like 7-5, but the, it's the wrong way around. The, 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 the cars that everybody agreed was the fastest has ended up winning quite yeah. often. So, yeah, it's, 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 only, it's only a function of how competitive it is when that can happen. So it's, it's good. I think the, the main thing is that we did... We need to hope that, I mean, there's been a trend in recent years to get to the summer break, and then you come back from your holes and either Fettel or Hamilton or whoever it might be rushes off and wins most of the remaining races. And you, so you think you've got a nicely balanced title contest, but the post-summer reality sometimes is that that doesn't happen. I, don't, I mean, do you think that's, are we going to get a one-sided post-summer situation or do you think, or do you think it's going no, to remain I, 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 don't, I don't think so. Um, I think... In terms of performance, the momentum is with Ferrari. Uh, the engine gains have made at the moment. Um, Mercedes uh, don't understand how they've they've, they've got them. Um, so that promises that that that's got a reasonable degree of promise for a very because Hamilton's leading by a handy margin, um, but the faster cars behind. Hopefully, um, that that's going to make the second season quite um, finely poised. Although Hamilton has got a, a habit of stepping it up a gear after the summer break, but we'll see. I mean, I think it actually, in a lot of terms, it's been so far the season that Formula One needed. So after after so long of kind of Mercedes strangulation, um, from a from a casual spectator point of view, I was actually at a family barbecue recently, and um, someone came up to speak to me um, during the Grand Prix, and they said they thought it was it was funny that they they wouldn't let anyone get a couple of races clear this year, and they almost thought it was fixed in in a kind of um, uh, in a kind of put together way, um, but actually, it's. I mean, Lewis has obviously since gone on a little bit of a run since since then. But in terms of rejuvenating interest in Formula One, I think it's actually done quite a lot because we needed a Ferrari to step up and we needed a Red Bull to to make some tactical yeah. gambles. I mean, the signs were there last year that Ferrari was, you know, um, rejuvenated. Um, there were many races last year where Ferrari actually had the faster car, although they couldn't. They tended not to be able to qualify ahead. Then that pretty much defined. Um, the 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 Mercedes advantage, but had it not been for that sort of reliability collapse close to the end of last year, they they would have been in contention last year. Um, but the the feeling was they'd missed that opportunity and it wasn't going to come again because everybody would see uh, the tricks that they'd used with that car, and it was a very very innovative innovative car. Um, everybody would catch up to that and leave them behind, or Mercedes would leave them, but it hasn't worked that way at all. 
and they've come back actually stronger. Um, I was say, because they've come up with new tricks, haven't they? They, they, they have. They've, they've added to the previous collection of tricks. Of yeah, yeah, they have. They, they, they are probably the most um, uh, creative of all, of all the, the top teams at the moment, I'd say. Look, look at the last two years of the, the, the stuff that they've had. And they're doing what Red Bull used to do, pushing very hard against the regulations. They're always being questioned, always being queried. And that's just a function of, um, of the creative process. And they, they are right on it now. For the first time in years, there's also been unreliability factored in, which has kind of created a bit of a false position on the table, especially for Bottas, I think. Yeah, yeah, Bottas has had a terrible look. I mean, he's could easily be looking at, you know, sitting on three Grand Prix wins, and he hasn't He, he hasn't could be ahead of uh, Vettel. And, uh, Sorry? If, if, he'd, if luck had gone his way, mm. he could have been with Vettel. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Easily. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, he's tended to perform best when on those uh, weekends where the car's been not quite there and Hamilton's sort of struggled with it um, and he's I mean the one I think it was uh, um, China where Vettel had led but he, he'd undercut ahead in a car that wasn't quite as quick that was going to be a really really impressive victory that um, then the safety car interrupted it and we ended up with a Red Bull uh, tactical advantage but um, yeah also back here he was going to win so yeah he's been he's been more regularly impressive than last year last year he had his peaks impressive peaks but this year he's he's, he's hit those you know much more consistently we've had this been the summer break it was where you normally get the deals that you're expecting to be struck so you get normally Raikkonen signed this year we've had Be- uh, Hamilton and Bottas and then just this week Ricardo who will Go into that in a bit more detail after this on Facebook, uh, which you'll be able to see if you go to our Facebook page. But still, the quick mention that now, a bit of a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Total surprise, yeah. Um, he'd, he'd been carrying around a contract for, for two weeks in his briefcase, apparently. And he kept, he, he, he very, he, he did very well in convincing everybody that it was just because there were a few details and I's to dot and T's to cross. And obviously, we since found out why he wasn't signing it. He was seriously considering the Renault offer, and um, yeah, he's made the jump. Um, just f- very brave, but uh, totally unexpected. It's led to the natural question of: Does he know something that we don't? I.e., is Adrian Newey going there? And it's a logical question. I don't think he is, but I don't know that he's not either. So let's wait and see. But short of that. Um, yeah, I struggle to see how it's going to put him in a better position in the two years that he has the contract for than if he just stayed put. But let's see. I mean, it's, um, there's a bit of a pattern developing, isn't there? Australians kind of surprising Red Bull by announcing they're off somewhere else without actually letting the team know till half an hour beforehand. Yeah, usually because they've got um, a little bit of an, a bee in their bonnet about the team's treatment of the other mm. guy. Mm, yes. Um, which yeah. is Seb in the first <laughs> instance and, and, and Max now. So um, I, don't, I don't think it's a, a really a deliberate policy. I think Max has just ended up... Folk, everything is... Ju- he's like a, the eye of the storm. Everything just sort of Gravitate naturally to gravitates yeah, yeah. towards him. Um, and it leaves the other guy sort of a little bit out on a limb. And y- y- even though I think materially he's, he's had a quality, he's had equal treatment, um, it, y- you just psychologically, I think, y- just like Mark before him, 
as related to Seb, it just feels a little bit, you know, the slightly less favoured one. And it's, I mean, it's no small undertaking either, is it? I mean, in my opinion, last year or three, Red Bull has had the strongest overall driver pairing in mm, Ricciardo and Ricardo and Verstappen. And I think next year Renner might have that with, with Ricardo and Hulkenberg. It'll be interesting to see those two, how those yeah. two conf, um, compare. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm looking but forward to it in many ways because, I mean, given the strength of Hulkenberg's track record all the way through the junior categories, how he came in, stepped up, you know, from Formula BMW A1 GP, dominated, mm-hmm. um, you know, won GP2 title in his rookie season. Yeah. Scoring three times as many points as Pastor Maldonado, who's mm. in about his 58th season. Mm. Um, yeah, he's, he's had just, <laughs> and then, but he's never, for some reason, it's just not quite happened for him in Formula One. Yeah. Everyone knows how good Ricardo is. I just, I I'm really looking forward to seeing how those two compare with each other. I still have question marks about Hulk. Uh, not about his speed, he's, he's devastatingly fast and he's fantastic in a way. Just, it just seems a bit of a coincidence that every team he's driven for has had a, a tired egg problem. Yes. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, let's, been, let's has, see. That, has that been a Pirelli era thing? Because in 2010 on Bridgestones, I don't recall that being a... Yeah, I think it, it's a Pirelli era thing. Um, and we're now going with tougher Pirellis, but uh, we might be going back to chocolate Pirellis. Um, so we'll see. But he was good at Le Mans on endurance ties without wanting to get bring sports cars into the conversation yeah. <laughs> he was good on michelin's mm. yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so warren renault i think the easiest way to do this maybe because there's so many questions to break this into teams and then go through people's questions sure. a, mainly weirdly a few from mercedes more from ferrari but just on renault um Tony Chan said, if you're a betting man, would you say that mid-2019 Honda's power unit would have, would have outperformed the Renault? Um, if I had to bet, yes, I would say so. I think Honda of uh, showing more commitment, more financial commitment uh, than Renault, um, who are trying to do it on a budget, and Honda isn't. So um, they joined in a year late. It's taken them a long time to catch up, but I yes, in, in those two years, if you ask me, who do I think would be ahead of between those two? I, I think it would be Honda. Yes, I also get the impression that uh, Honda has this year had a more cooperative technical partner in Toro Rosso. Yeah, definitely. The Toro Rosso has been more willing to yeah adapt definitely. the car to the engine's requirements. Sure, in a way that McLaren possibly sure, and then the, the both parties have been a lot more open with each other um, as. Toro Rosso were uh, showing them things about their car that McLaren had never shown them about theirs. Honda reciprocated and said, oh, come and look at this. This, this is a research program we've got going. And um, So, yeah, I think that is gelled. Um, and and a mu- that relationship has gelled much better than the McLaren one, um, albeit it's a more mature program, so you'd expect it to. But, uh, yeah, it, it is going in the right direction. I think Tony Chan has also said um, that he feels that Renault... Uh, we're spending money for exposure, whereas, or exposure at all costs, whereas Honda wants a win at all costs. Do you think that's fair, Rob? I think it probably is fair. I mean, if you if you look at, um, I mean, Renault's been there and had success, and Honda's obviously not had success for thirty years, essentially. Um, and you look at the progress they've made, and I also think they've got the bit between their teeth because we were all probably quite. <laughs> quite hard on Honda in the McLaren era and we've since worked out that actually it, it wasn't all Honda um, and I think they're getting a bit of vindication now from this Toro Rosso programme so you look at I mean Gasly's results in particular have been have been pretty strong um, and looking at the looking at the Renault era at the moment they've also made some progress but there's con- 
been constant delays on ERS and, and problems like that where Honda seem to be feeding things more regularly now. Um, and I just think that's an interesting swing, um, especially with Honda having the upgraded UK engine plant. I mean, Red Bull must know something. I mean, they're not the kind of team that's just going to fall out with Renault and say, right, well, you know, you've upset us, so now we're just going to go and gamble on something else and throw away all of our, our Formula One history that we've <laughs> frankly fought hard to get. A couple of our readers have actually blamed Alonso for the partnership with McLaren and Honda breaking down. Um, Peter Spears says, do you think the influence he appears to have over the running of McLaren has contributed to the mire it now finds itself in? So that I guess that knocks on not, from the Not Honda. a first order. I wouldn't say it was the first order reason. Um, uh, his criticism, his very public criticism over the radio certainly wouldn't have helped the relationship, but I think it was um, a fractured relationship long before we started hearing that. Um, yeah, Alonso's doesn't doesn't hold back, and his public pronouncements probably doesn't help when it's a, a delicate situation. But it, no, it's not the reason the re relationship fell apart. The relationship fell apart because uh, the two sides were were not cooperating, and I think in hindsight, McLaren was hiding behind the Honda shortfall, which was absolutely was there, but it, it rather than examining itself for its own weaknesses, it was assuming it didn't have those weaknesses and just saying, well, it's all, the the engine's obviously a long way short and therefore that's all the problem, all of it. And it wasn't. I thought it was quite, talking of falling apart, I thought it was quite telling, it was in Baku where Fernando clattered the car on the on the opening lap, knocked off about 30% of the aerodynamic bits and then found it better afterwards. Yeah, well, he <laughs> also on the way back, um, on uh, his uh, um, lack, lack of tyres, I think he had um, three damaged tyres, and it, it wouldn't actually turn um, unless he hit the barrier and he, he got the he, he got the barrier to make a turn and he'd had to do that three times including the one in the pit lane just to get it into the, the pit, pit apron and he, he got it got it going again and uh, yeah it had ripped a great big hole in the in, in the floor um which uh, allowed it to fly down the straights uh, which it hadn't done before and he he said afterwards only half joking he said that's oh, quite a good upgrade <laughs> is james key the man to turn them around do you think I think the problem got deeper than um, a new technical director. Um, although you know th that's uh, the recruitment of James, um, a very positive thing. He's a very good guy. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, it's rec it's recognition of the the limitations that is sort of almost in the DNA of of the, the team that have been there for uh, probably ten years or more, and it. It's taken it's taken this long for it to unfold to, to for us to see clearly just how far yeah. behind it's fallen. So do you think uh, Boulier maybe maybe stepped into a role that? Yeah, I think Eric was um, handed a role that really he, he couldn't win with. Um, he, he maybe uh, took too long to understand that, and that there were things that he needed to get on top of that he was going to get blamed for if he didn't get on top of them. Um, but as, as I say, that I think the problems run deeper than just who was um, running the team. Yeah. Uh, do you think he's quite a bullish guy? Do you think that maybe worked against him? In that he wasn't maybe willing to accept? Yes, yeah, probably. He started to get very defensive as 
um, you know, it became obvious that he was going to become the scapegoat. So yep. naturally, he became defensive. Um, but I think uh, his fate was already sealed by then. Do you think next year is too soon for them to turn around? Uh, not turn around. Not in terms of improving their performance and moving up the grid. No, I, th I think they probably will. Um, but in terms of uh, being potential race winners, it, it's no, it's 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 a long way away. You both agree with? Uh, yeah, I think I do. I mean, we've seen some words from um, from Zach Brown as well recently saying, you know, it, it, it's not going to happen in a year. And I mean, even if you even if you get a great mind like James Key in the door, we've seen these kind of examples of silo thinking at McLaren, where the chassis guys only want to care about the chassis, or or reportedly the suspension guys only want to care about that, and you get a complete lack of information. And if if the guys building the car can't talk to each other and that flow of information isn't there, how can they possibly pass it on to Honda? And then how can Honda come back with it when their technical centre is the other side of the world? So there were, yeah, all sorts of all sorts of issues there. I think it needs quite a big rebuild. Um, looking from the outside, I, I don't I don't even see it being a particularly attractive proposition proposition for big name drivers at the moment either, because they know they're going to be walking into something that that needs substantial work to get it back to where it should be. I mean, the, the, the scale of the decline reminds me in some, of team, of some ways of teams like Tyrrell in the past, who, you know, were a major powerhouse in the early 70s, but gradually over over the period of the next 15, 20 years, kind of drifted towards the back of the grid. I mean, McLaren's decline in some ways has been sharper than that. They've got greater resources, which would give them a fighting chance of working their way back towards the top of the pile. But as Mark says, I, mean, I can't see it happening any time next three, four years, can you? Well, that's the thing. I mean, they've got, um, they've got very wealthy shareholders, and if they needed to have a bigger budget, if the shareholders deemed it appropriate, they, they could have. They could have as big a budget as anyone. Um, but I think they're re a bit reluctant to put their hands any deeper into their pockets because they've just been convinced to you know, surrender $100 million worth of, of um, partnership and exchange for something else and that this would for be no the game. solution. And for arguably competitive neutral. Um, so once you've been asked for the money and not delivered, to come back and ask for some more money is probably um, you know, probably going to fall on deaf ears until they're a bit more confident of the, the management that's in place. One last thing on uh, McLaren. Um, Gareth Davies has asked whether Van Dorn is being hurt, his reputation has been hurted by, or hurt by <laughs> the car. Yes, it's, it's, been, it's been very hurted. <laughs> yes. Terrible hurt. I'm a journalist, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, his, his reputation has been damaged because he's been totally outperformed over you know, season and a half by Alonso. Um, and if you're coming in as the, the next big thing, which he, he did, uh, you would at least expect him to challenge Alonso and, and beat him every now and again, and that just hasn't happened. Um, it's much more difficult to do that in this era of no testing, you don't get anything like the preparation you used to get. Um, so experience does count for an awful lot more. Um, and because of the difficulties of being in, he has tended to not have been a priority and uh, sort of fallen into the number two status. Uh, I think his potential is what we what we saw beforehand, but whether he can ever access it, I don't know. It's It's very difficult after you've been psychologically damaged like that to 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 come back um 
a fresh start, you know, um, another team maybe we might begin to see that fantastic potential that we saw in Is GP2. Is there a space though? Because if, if science does come in, then... Yeah, I mean, there may, there may be there may be space at somewhere like Toro Rosso. But, yeah, you wouldn't be surprised if, if he's not on the grid. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's up in the air, that one. Yeah, it's, it, to my mind, it's one of the great shames of the, the, the current era is that a young driver like that who, again, the Hulkenberg thing, I mean, who showed such immense form. But Van Dorn's case particularly, I mean, he made his Renault 3.5 debut and was winning from his first weekend against more experienced teammates. He won on his debut weekend in GP2 as well. And then he comes into this and all the signs are that he's exceptional. And after a year and a half against this, he's still, I mean, I know Ferdy's exceptional, we know that. But he's, he's not really been, he's just not making inroads or doesn't seem to be. Yeah, um, his, his driving style was particularly um, Dam's GP2, which they have a very yeah, yes. specific <laughs> setup um, and demands a very specific driving style and wasn't the most appropriate. ART. ART, yeah. yeah. yeah to um, Formula One. But, I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing you, you, you sort out after three or four races yeah. of, of understanding. It's been a season and a half, so that's not an adequate excuse anymore. I mean, we saw a similar thing with um, Charles Leclerc, didn't we, when he, when he came in? He said he was overdriving the car, and that's why he was, he was suffering against Ericsson at the start, but he seems yeah. to have got on top of it. Slightly different uh, trait, but yeah, um, I mean, he was, he was chasing response in the car, so he, he, was, he was chasing, like, quick from turning to apex, he wanted quick response, which um, you can actually build quite a lot of that into the car with the um, with the suspension. And once this, once he started to believe his engineers that you could do that, and you didn't have to have to be all driver input, um, he got a more stable, progressive car, and he was able to get some confidence from that. Um, and it was just fluke because we went to Baku, which was round four. And they said, "Look, it's a street circuit. You're going to hit things with with it like this. Let's let's do a tamer. Let's just can you just listen to us for this one? Let's do a tamer <laughs> setup." Um, and so he did, and he went with it. And he said, "Oh, this is great. This is much better." I said, "Yeah, yeah." So then he was flying, and he, he's not not really looked back since. So before we move to the front of the grid, um, just the last few words on teams at the back who are maybe on their knees. Teams like Williams um, and Force India. Is there a future for Force India? Oh, I'm sure there's a future, yes. We just don't know at this point who the owners are going to be. Um, and there's some um, matters to be sorted out in terms of the other teams agreeing to, um, you know, for them to continue to receive the, the prize money for finishing fourth on the constructors. I'm sure that will be sorted out. Um, whether it's with the agreement in place with Mercedes for wind tunnel share and aero support, uh, that's a different question. Um, that as I understand it, was in place before the team went into administration. And it m takes the team more towards the Haas model, still not completely the Haas model because it'll still be building the car, but takes it more towards that. And the ov obviously teams like McLaren-Williams um, feel very vulnerable to that model. And uh, so they were using the opportunity of the team being in administration to question that and ask for some assurances before they sign off and I guess if they lose Stroll to Force India they're going to be Williams are going to be even more backs against the wall and yeah but maybe the Ricciardo thing has changed all that because it means that Ocon is no longer going to Renault so maybe there isn't space at Force India I, I don't know um, 
because he's still, uh, unless he buys the team, but as I understand that he didn't want to buy the team. He wanted to uh, put money into the team, but not for a shareholding. But maybe maybe that's, he sees that. He maybe changes his mind now. Do you think also that Williams is so far adrift that Mercedes wouldn't put Ocon into Williams? I don't think they would put Ocon into Williams, no. Um, because they would want to, keep the momentum, the forward momentum of Ocon's career going yeah. and on current form that that wouldn't happen And on that point actually uh, James on Twitter has asked if Williams employed a proper racing driver his words, uh, how far up the grid would they be? What do you guys think? Uh, not not that much further up the car's so bad I don't think there's uh, a lot of times it's grid position wouldn't change if you put Lewis Hamilton in it You know, to, the car's so far off um, there's certain circuits where it's uh, weaknesses aren't punished so badly, like Baku, for example, where he, uh, a, a proper driver might have just scraped it into Q3 rather than just missing Q3. But you know the difference between uh, Sergei Sorotkin and Fernando Alonso is probably less than a second. So th- th- that, that's not that's not the dominant shortfall the, when the car's three three and a half seconds off the pace. You d- you can forget trying to prioritize drivers. Dri- drivers can be a very um, galvanizing force and can sort of inject a sort of urgency in, into a program with their personality and they can work well with engineers and to, to find solutions more quickly. But they, they, they can't fundamentally change the fact that a, a terrible car is a terrible car. So. That's that's like number fifteen in the list of things to do is to get a better driver. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very unfair that Sirotkin and Stroll have both been targeted for you know perceived ineptitude. But you know, Stroll won the FIA European Formula Three Championship. Sirotkin was a mm. race winner regularly in GP two, finished third in the championship. You know, they are not they're inexperienced. They're very young, but no, they're not hopeless. But uh, yeah, it also the the models changed. Somewhat. I mean, forget Stroll. That is a, f- a family thing. He's, he's, yeah. His father's paying for that. But um, in something like um, Sorokin's case, or you, you see it with Maldonado, they are quick drivers that have attracted personal backing through being quick drivers, and they've then taken that personal backing to, to, to various teams to get their careers up and running, which is. No different to what Nicky Lauda did, or you know, Fernando Alonso, Fernando Alonso did, yeah, or Ronnie yeah. Peterson used to do yeah. even late into his career. That's just that's normal. So that to to that to say that's a pay driver is technically accurate, but hugely misleading. Yeah, absolutely, so, so yeah, yeah. no, no absolutely. I, I, I think that's an unfair, uh, really unfair criticism, really, because I think uh, Sorokin has delivered. Um, Pretty impressively this year, given the limitations of the car, he was fantastic at Monaco, for example. Um, and he was one of the recent ones. Was it Hungary, Hungary or Germany? It was one of them where he was very impressive. He, he had the car much further on than it should have been when he was watching it out on track. How much do you think with the Sorokin thing as well? He's he's almost been tainted by being the guy that that beat Robert Kubica to the seat. I know, yeah. I know, obviously. Kibitza had his limitations. Williams have looked at the data. Presumably, they've also looked at a check at some point. Um, but it, he almost—he always almost got tarred straight away as the bad guy, didn't yeah, he? Because he, he ended that fairy tale. He was always going to because, yeah. I mean, we all love love Robert, and we'd all love that fairy tale to come true. 
and this was real life imposing itself on the fairy tale because the, the, the team needed the money and the money was there and he performed better at the test. So, you know, it wasn't really, it wasn't ever going to work out. The fairy tale wasn't going to come true on that occasion. It, it, there's still hope that it might, but there's still question marks ab about Robert's ultimate performance. I, I, I hope he can prove that it's it's still there or thereabouts and that he can pick up a race drive and that would be fantastic but yeah Sirot can always um was always onto a, a loser in, in in public perception by um by putting the kibosh on on what would have been robert's drive that was going to be robert's drive you've been promised it what smp is doing is no different to what red bull's doing it's just a smaller version and about <laughs> yeah, one country arguably, yeah. effectively yeah, <laughs> yeah. um would the Ricardo move, does that make it easier for Kibitza to find a seat or is it shaken up so much that he's now in the cold? Yeah, it could go either, it way. Could go either way because it just, it's, it's, you're looking at game theory, how trying to predict how something will change as a result of something else changing is sort of like the butterfly effect. I, um, I, yeah, there were stories that before the Ricciardo move that if Stroll went to force India, um, Lance was keen that Robert came with him because he works well together, he learns a lot from him um, and I think he gets on well with Lawrence so there was possibility there um, I think Honda is very interested in Robert because of his ex experience to help him develop the engine but you probably come up against a blockage with Helmut Marko there because he's not one of their drivers and he's not young um, there was talk about Hasp when, when um, you know Grosjean kept kept crashing so he's struggling to hang on to that seat I don't know it, it's not impossible but uh, if I if I was to bet it would it would be against a fairy tale just to pick up on one of those points it's it's going to be quite interesting I think to see how the Red Bull situation pans out because I mean Carlos Sainz is obviously on the market and there is a there is a synergy there whether they're they're keen to grab him back. I, d I don't know whether they're going to put Gasly from a Toro Rosso up to the Red Bull. I don't know whether they'd offer signs to Toro Rosso seat, which I'm pretty sure he wouldn't want. Who knows? And and what's you know the, where Red Bull once had a you know a pyramid of drivers below Formula One now, as we saw with Brendan Hartley coming back to the fold this year. Dan Tictum's doing okay in Formula Three, but I don't think winning their three titles is going to get him enough points for a super license. I think he's going to be a couple short. Yeah, he's going to be a few short. So, um, you know, what <laughs> what does Toro Rosso do next? You know, where does Helmut Marco go and go fishing? I don't, I don't know. That's quite interesting itself, though, isn't it? Because uh, for years you always knew the next people that were going to come into Formula One, and actually now when you look at it, I mean, we had years. I mean, for example, when when Jolian won uh, GP2 Palmer, the space just wasn't there for him. He had to take a reserve deal and that's not really the way it should be your GP2 champion should get a, a chance somewhere else um, but with with the kind of current let's let's call it a little void in the in the in the Red Bull scheme you've currently got Toro Rosso there that are now perhaps going to have to look at drivers that haven't been fully nurtured by Red Bull and we've got we've got people like Lando Norris and we've got Jack Aitken and we've George got Russell George Russell absolutely I mean we're almost getting to a little golden age where that top five or six well, from Formula Two is suddenly going to be able to find some space. Don't forget, Max Verstappen wasn't, wasn't on the Red, Red Bull driver. Wasn't no. on the Red Bull Junior. <laughs> yeah, scheme, absolutely true. Yeah, I think people quite often. I mean, I know that Red Bull often claim him as our young driver, but he was a 
he was their young driver from Formula One onwards. Yes, had nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with him getting to the cusp of Formula One. Was still very young though. So he was. Very, yes, he was very young. Yeah, yeah. so young that had to change the rules. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a question here actually on that topic from Alberto, um, saying that Spanish media are saying the Verstappen's have vetoed signs coming back. Um, it's not something I've seen, but is there any truth in this? Do you think? I don't think they have the power to um, veto, but. Um, the, the, it's it's true that the the two camps didn't get on well together at Toro Rosso, and you know given given the, the team's history, that might be a concern that might play into whether they go with Carlos or not. Um, but I would think actually the team's big and ugly enough to not be too concerned about that. It's dealt with Weber Vettel. It's dealt with you know Daniel and Max this year at Baku. It's inevitable those things happen. If you if you want to run two super competitive drivers, you're going to get those flashpoints. It's going to happen, and I think they'd rather do that than run an easy number one, number two, because that's the low maintenance way of running it. But I don't think that's what yeah. they want to do. Because get borrow Yamaha's wall maybe from MotoGP. <laughs> um, as a last thing on Red Bull from DR, do you think Max Verstappen has changed his driving approach, or is he? St- is he still no I think all that changed was he got a little bit over rich uh, early in the season in that he just he tried to do the same but more as he'd always done and there wasn't any more you know there's this um, and sort of all reason deserted him that moment when he tried to go around the outside of Lewis in China Um, I think helped a little bit by Lewis Lewis sort of (laughs) suckering him into it but he didn't need to fall for it. You know, he could have done it conventionally three or four corners later. Um, and I think that just told you where his mind was at at that time. Um, so I think that was the change. The, the, the early season, he was he's, he's going even deeper than he used to go be- before. And he's now gone back to where he was and everything's fine again. Because one of the remarkable things about him, to my mind, was those early races with Toro Rosso, how you'd see him outbreaking people from, you know, half a country away mm. and never locking up mm. never you know never no mistakes it was always clean it was clinical yeah and it, i mean his racecraft was superb and that's what we didn't see in the first half of this year when he was making the kind of mistakes that other drivers used to make yeah yeah and i mean it's it's the same with daniel as well he's, he's similarly fantastic overtaker but um yeah they're both they made it in a bit of an art form um i guess because they've had may, may be helped by the fact that the red bull is traditionally being down on straight line speed so you can't do the traditional stick it under the rear wing of the other car and then flick out and then late break they they tend to do it from a long way back but what the the, the little detail of it that means that the wheels don't lock is that they get the car turned before the move even starts and then just make a straight line for the for the apex um something you see mansell do mansell used to do it as well and then yeah you, you you're all offline and too shallow by the time you get to the apex but it doesn't matter the other guy you block the other guy and then you just get the whole speed the speed all taken right the way down but the other guy has to bring his speed right the way down as well because he's got nowhere to go and then you you're out in the way um so that's that's what they've done that um yeah you you still don't see the others picking up on you see jensen do it quite a lot but um i still you still don't see the others sort of twigging that oh yeah (laughs) there is another way of doing this um but there's a the, the engineers will tell you for each track, there's a, 
there's a number, a magic number, you need to be this much faster to overtake. So it's typically anywhere between 1.2 and 2.2 seconds, you know, you need to be that much faster to be able to overtake at all. Um, Ricciardo cons consistently disproves those numbers, <laughs> you know. He, he might be only half a second faster, he can still get past. He can he'll still do Two or three cars at once sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, um, yeah, there is, I think it's, it, it's easy if the engineer says, yeah, that's it, we've looked at the, the evidence. It's for this. I think it's probably easy for the driver to say, oh, well, that's, 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 that's that, then I can't do it. Um, you know, sometimes the driver has to override the, the, the numbers. Is there a case that because Ricardo is chasing, that he has to take that risk a bit more than maybe a Vettel would do? He can accept. Fourth. Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it as well. Yeah, and, and as I say, the the fact that you're always down on straight line speed, so you can't do it the conventional yeah. way. You have to get creative. You start to sound like Christian Horner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm explaining the same facts. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move to the front two now. Um, it's about 20 minutes or so left, which should give us enough time. Um, some people have asked specifics about how Ferrari's made the gap up. Um, LMP's asked how Ferrari suddenly found 38 horsepower, if that's, that could be a number <laughs> out the air, or... It's very specific. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's very specific. <laughs> yeah. um, but maybe it's a 39 but fell Maybe short. it's a kilowatt conversion or something like that. Um, we don't know. And Mercedes don't know, so I don't know. Um, you know <laughs> so... Uh, but it it's nowhere near 40 horsepower or 38 horsepower over a lap um, there may be peaks where it's like momentarily that much higher um, the pattern seen from GPS is that the biggest advantages at the beginning of a lap this isn't qualifying this is a qualifying situation is the beginning of the lap and the advantage gradually trickles down to nothing by the end of the lap. Um, so that big number they're talking about might be the momentary flash advantage, but it's nowhere near that over a lap. It's doubt whether it's 10 over a lap, um, but it is something, and it, it, it has been there since certainly Austria. Um, it's, it's coming from somewhere. Um, and it does seem to be fantastically efficient at harvesting and uh, there's even suggestions that with the twin battery they found a way of harvesting and deploying at the same time but quite how that would um, find you uh, advantages on the, on the tracks that we've been to that aren't limited in that way anyway um, I'm not sure so yeah don't know they've found something I'm sure it is legal um, it's not the same thing, but maybe connected to uh, the the twin battery arrangement that um, Merck was querying early in the season, and which resulted in the FIA putting um, software and hardware on to measure it um, to make sure it's legal. It's set. It's not that issue. That issue's now been, you know, put put in a box and controlled. Um, but it might be related to that in, in, in the fact that it might be related to something that the, the twin battery arrangement allows them to do. It does ask whether, if, if Mercedes doesn't know what, the, what they've done, are they satisfied that it's not illegal? No, they're not, but that's, yeah, that's the obvious <laughs> position of any competitive entity, isn't it? If somebody's beating you and you can't understand how they're doing it, you obviously question whether it's legal. 
but I, I've not, you know, I've got no reason to think that it is illegal. I, I think it's probably just clever. There's another number here from Valentin who said 10 to 12 horsepower. Sorry, it could be. Well, like, yeah, that, that <laughs> sounds more like an average over the lap rather than a flash reading. Yeah. Uh, he also asks the balance of the pros and cons of Mercedes low rate concept, which is obviously you've, we've seen a little bit of convergence with the technology between Ferrari and mm -hmm. Mercedes, but is Mercedes still got the... Mercedes still keeps the low rake and everybody else pretty much has gone the Red Bull route of high rake. Um, it's more aerodynamically efficient in that it costs you less drag for a given amount of downforce. Um, it's uh, it, There's an argument that it's better in the wet because a high rate car needs more sealing, it needs a more powerful seal at the edges of the floor because there's, um, there's actually more, more to, to seal, there's more negative pressure there and that gets th that seals is um, provided by vortices which are created by all the various flips and things you see at the front of the car and off hanging off the front wing um, and that they are more disturbed by a groove tire than by a slick tire and therefore it loses a greater proportion of its downforce than the Merc which isn't relying as heavily on that sealing effect that's only a theory and nobody really knows because everybody would have to have access to everybody else's data to be able to do the comparison it's just a working theory that might be true might not be um, but again a bit of traction with um, Hamilton's performance in the wet in qualifying in Hungary um, but actually had Ferrari not sent Kimi out into the spray of Grosjean I'm pretty sure Kimi would have been on a pretty resounding pole there so I'm not even sure that holds up and he also asked if they're going to continue with that into next season. It would be too big a change to. I think they will. I think they will. I, th I think if they were going to make the change, they would have made it for this season. Um, you go into a new aerodynamic philosophy. You're losing all all the data that you've built up. You're starting from base camp again. It could take you a year or two years to get to the level of somebody else that's been on that program for a long time. I think we'll stay with it because it's not. It's it's not clearly inferior. Um, it, it has downsides, it has upsides, so um, I think on balance the, the high rate one is probably the most obviously effective way, but they're, they're making the low rate one work, so no, I, would, I expect them to stay. Where do you, where, uh, you two, where do you rate the Mercedes-Ferrari uh, battle, I guess, in, his, in history? Is this up there with the greats, or is this now a little bit too... Relying on other factors. A bit deferred by Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Simon. That's really <coughs> well, you look like you were about to speak, so I thought you, you can get on with it. I, well, I always have well, that. I look. I'll give him some thinking time. Um, <laughs> up there with the greats. I think in terms, of, in terms of pushing the boundaries of what you can actually achieve with technology now, then yes, ab absolutely. We're, we're kind of into untrodden steps if you like um, with two teams obviously Mercedes has enjoyed the, the supremacy but Ferrari's been working massively hard and seems to chip away and get that bit closer um, something's changed at Ferrari the the leadership's different and you can see that on the track you can see that in the team's mentality as well um, so it's very interesting I mean the the, the back and forward is is quite intriguing I find you see I mean, Ferrari seems to have the one lap advantage, but the Mercedes have just got the consistency. And then Mercedes also, I, I believe, have just got that, that little bit extra in Hamilton. Um, head to head, I would probably say 
Hamilton probably just edges Seb, but there's not much in it. But they've both... Uh, it's, a, it's almost like they've got a reflection of the teams in different colours. Because you've got Valtteri Bottas, who at the moment, great driver, but seems to be almost quite <laughs> content to play a bit of a supporting role to Lewis. And then you've got Kimi, who... <laughs> readily it makes them say it on the radio which is quite nice but um when when they want to try and use team orders he will almost <laughs> begrudgingly obey them um and make his point known afterwards but he, he will still do it so you've got you've got the superstar in each team you've got cars that are both very evenly matched and then you've also got your supporting actors at the moment yeah i mean i'm, I'm enjoying i mean a lot of the time on sundays i'm at either at cadwell park or lyddon hill or wherever it might be but still uh, prescott but so, but I normally try and catch up um, late in the evening with what with what's been going on. I mean, the one thing it is an intriguing battle, and as as we talk now, it's it's still even though Hamilton's got a reasonable cushion, it's it's still nicely poised. Um, the one thing that we don't see, I mean, over the years, I guess we've very rarely seen is, is we don't see that many actual you know, mano a mano combat on the track. I mean, it's. I mean, Silverstone, there was some good close racing between them, but there have been a few times. But generally, it's I know it's a it's a romantic notion that we're, you know, you, you're going to see this. The sort of stuff that I see in historic Formula 4, where you've got nine cars glued together in a lead battle and they're swapping positions all the time. Um, Is it as good as Tony Sutton's Skoda versus McHill's Volkswagen Beetle? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is it as good a battle as that? I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, there, was, there was slightly less strategy involved in that, I feel. Mm. Um, and I don't think the Skoda had MG UK or MG UH, I as far as I recall. I don't think they were cheating with the twin battery either. No, 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 no. Probably, probably mm. not. But, I mean, that's... that's a They're <laughs> cheating somewhere. But, and, but <laughs> I, I, I know we romanticise these things, but you go back to the early 60s and Jim Clark, either the car broke or he won by a fortnight. You know, it wasn't super competitive then either. The cars were very elegant. They were lovely to watch. People get in the paddock. It was... You know, there's a lovely band of brothers travelling around together, lovely romantic notions about what it was like. But the racing wasn't as competitive. It was nowhere near as competitive then as it is now. I mean, I mean, apart from the stragglers, what's the typical spread across the top 10 on the grid this year? Second and a half, oh, something? About one, yeah, about 1.2, 1.3, something so like this, that. I mean, even going back to you know, the days of the Williams FW14B, I mean, there'd be three seconds across the first two, three rows of the yeah. grid. Yeah. I mean, it's... It is fantastically competitive now. Whatever people might think about the physicality of the racing, I mean, the, the level of competition, I believe, is as high and intense as it's ever been yep. in any era. Because we're on the back of various periods of domination, aren't we? We've had, you go back to McLaren in the 80s, you've got, then you're into the Schumacher era, and then you've got a brief period of unknown until Vettel appears, and then you've got Hamilton. And now we've got, now we've, we in the summer break, we have no idea who's going to win the championship. So mm. I think it's just maybe rose-tinted glasses looking back, where we, like Simon said, we romanticise things a bit too much. So who's your money on, though? They all do you. Vettel? Just, just because I think that Ferrari advantage will hold. Um, so therefore should logically be him but there's 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 always something big red alert saying don't bet against mercedes you're betting against mercedes and lewis hamilton so but yeah yeah logically i, I think vettel i would have said the same this time last year though and i'd have been wrong so who knows yeah the, the same question was asked when we did a similar mid-season podcast last year 
and I'm quite pleased to say that I was the only one who said Hamilton, everyone else went for Vettel because they all said, well, you know, they'll use, use Kimi as a battering ram, they'll use Kimi as this or whatever. Um, last year, I just thought the way Hamilton was driving, um, not that he's driving any worse this year, uh, I just thought there was something about about him last year that um, I didn't foresee Ferrari's late season unreliability, but I just, there was something that made me think Hamilton was going to do it this year, I have absolutely no idea. Um, Hamilton's driving beautifully, Vettel, for the most part, uh, cast the uh, mistake at Hockenheim aside, um, for the moment, I mean, he's also been driving beautifully. I'm, I genuinely find it too hard to call this year. I mean, do you think, uh, we've, we've seen Ferrari leading at this stage and we've seen them chasing at this stage and they almost seem to especially in the modern era of formula one they seem to have developed this wonderful habit of throwing it away um where mercedes kind of have that that ability to remain stoic all the way to the end um i mean i'd i'd, I'd love to see ferrari win another world championship because i think they're massively overdue one um especially with a driver like seb on board but can they can they really topple that uh, can they really take out mercedes and lewis when they're, when they're in the groove i don't know i mean the I mean, do you think there's an element of pressure at Ferrari because they haven't? Well, Kimi was the last champion yeah, in 2007. Sure. Do you think that's is that, is that part, a part of that stoicism? Is, is is the fact that they've had a you know a machinery advantage, so you know, it's easy to, um, to to remain calm when you have an underlying performance advantage, which is no longer there. Um, and yeah, they are more seasoned in in doing that and in in bringing home the bacon. But I think um, there is. There's always a huge, huge pressure upon Ferrari, not just from the Italian, but from all of Formula One, because it, it, you know it, it, it reflects well on Formula One when Ferrari do well. It just it just does. It becomes more popular. Um, so there's outside of the competitors, there's there's always a there's always a wish to see Ferrari do well, and that that, that places pressure on them as well. Um, it would be given given events, you know, with the, the passing of Sergio Marconi, it, it would be incredibly emotional um, if they pulled it off. Um, but I just keep coming back to the fact that they do seem to have the fastest car. Um, and uh, if Seb can handle the pressure, because he's going to be enormous, um, with uh, Mercedes and Lewis coming at you, I think um, I think he's capable of doing that, and yeah, I think he might. I think he should just edge it. With Ferrari being faster at the moment, do you foresee Mercedes almost pushing the envelope that that bit more? Because we've already seen the kind of fragility of Mercedes so far. If they have to push it that bit further, yeah. can that be a turning point? Well, it, may, it might turn out that way. Yeah, it. Um, we've seen the first ever double mechanical retirement of Merck in Austria, um, and. Those things, those things happen when you're being pushed on performance, when you don't have a nice handy cushion to give yourself um, margins. So, yeah, and I think the fact that the current Ferrari engine advantage is coming from an area that Merck confess they don't understand is what just might swing it. If they can hold on to that secret for four or five races before somebody works it out, then maybe it'll be enough. Four or five races when it doesn't rain suddenly and, <laughs> and, upset, <laughs> yes. the, and, upset, and upset the apple. It's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? The, um, 
I mean, for a long time, Ferrari didn't have a champion driver between Jody Scheckter in 1979 and Michael Schumacher in 2000. And the wider world didn't seem that bothered. I mean, it was nice having Ferrari around. They're a cuddly mm. bunch of Italians who, who you know, produced the odd half-decent car. Fabulous um, coffee as well. And, and fabulous coffee. But the, um, you know, the, 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 the pressure that and the modern age. With modern era, yeah. yeah it, 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 it's the, just the, much the, more intense than it ever was back then. Oh, yeah, People just weren't yeah. bothered then, were they? You no, know. that was a specialist activity then, wasn't it? It's not now. Yeah. So if we're going to have a five-time champion, um, and Valentin Rudikan has asked whether Hamilton or Vettel is in the same bracket as Fangio. I would say yes, because I think they're two of the most underrated because people are too partisan when they when it comes to Hamilton and Vettel. They either yeah. like him or they don't. And there's, well, there's, there's that effect and there's also the effect of of, of, um, of people that are in, into the history of the sport um, always tend to undervalue the present because it's now and therefore it's not as interesting as yeah. history. Those, those were the historic... Ben, um, there's that, but I would say no, but but not f for that reason. I would say the 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 game was so much more serious when Fangio was doing it than now, because you, you you you're playing a much lesser game now because it's so much safer. Um, so when you uh, did what he did at Nurburgring in '57, if you got that wrong, you weren't just going into the gravel trap, or you weren't just going to lose a race. You, you probably going to end up in the morgue so to to win five championships in those circumstances as after you've broken your neck one year actually and had to sit a season out um i don't think you you can equate those things regardless of and that's not their fault it's not the modern guys's fault you know but i don't think they can ever equal that as an achievement because i think the the game is less yeah, I don't think it, it doesn't dilute the fact they're both. They are both still. They will. They will always be, you know, all-time greats in terms of the sports, you know, overall history. But I think. I mean, I agree with Mark. I think um, because of the potential consequences back then. I mean, you were pushing the limit as much as you dared, and sometimes beyond. Um, where you know the, the the penalty for which was rather greater than you know a couple of ten a couple of tenths lost through a corner or a, or a puncture. I think if you if you took Lewis or Fernando or Seb or Max and were able to um, w wipe their wipe their memory and knowledge of current technology clean and create this f uh, virtual world where we were back in the 1950s and say this is the safest best car that current technology can come up with, um, your jobs to go on race these, they would be fantastic at it and they would be competing head to head with those guys but that doesn't make their achievements now the same So I guess the history starts again in the 80s in theory when you Well it's, it's a gradual progressive change wasn't it, I mean the, you look at an 80s car now it looks absolutely lethal you look at an early 90s car with it exposed, you know, the, the cockpit it looks terrifyingly yeah, yeah, at the time you thought they were, you know. And a final word for the rest of the grid. Bill and Sydney's asked who is impressed most from the midfield, who's sort of from tier two. Probably Leclerc, just because it's it, it, a rookie season and he's done remarkable things. And um, that performance of back, it was just sensational. It was a time when he was, um, he's holding off Kimi. 
Um, he was lapping a couple of tenths slower than the leaders, two tenths faster than his teammate, and just looking like it was easy. You know, it was no, there was no scrappiness to it. It was easy, um, and he's not always been as impressive as that since. But it, he's always he's been he's been good. I think yeah. If you had to pick a, a standout performer from the, the midfield, be it'd be him. Is that unanimous? Well. I'd, I'd certainly agree on the drive, but I also think it's uh, worth you know giving Sauber a slap on the back because I know they've got more resources than they've had in recent years. Mm-hmm. But they've what they've done with them. Yeah, I mean they've made very good use of them, yeah. and they've, they've they've raised they've raised the game from being consistently 18th, 19th, 20th to now being both cars getting into Q2, sometimes into Q3 with with Leclerc. Um, you know, I think the whole the whole team is yes, I say, yes, they've got more cash, more resources, but they've used them well. I think Gaz, Gasly and Ocon have done a have done a great job as well this year, but in in terms of where you would have placed your money at the start of the year, I don't think anyone would have said Leclerc would have been quite as impressive as he has been so far, given his machinery. And as so much for the shoe in for the Ferrari seat, presumably. Well, he was going to be. I think. I think, as far as I understand, that would, that was happening. Um, but the um, the passing of Marchionne may have changed that. So there, there were a lot of structural changes that have been put on hold. As I understand, um, and that that may be one of them. And also, just like to pick up on what Rob just said, I think um, Gasly's peaks haven't been as consistent as Leclerc's, but the you know the peaks he has had, I think, have been exceptional. Certainly, Bahrain was Bahrain was fourth, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, um, you know, the, 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 he has put in some very very good drives. Had a fair dose of bad luck as well, where he, he has had, <laughs> he's yes, been yeah. taken out. Quite yeah, he early. has had. Yeah, maybe Roman Grosjean usually, but uh, yeah, he has had a fair, fair dose of bad luck. I think we are about to be interrupted by the builders, so I think we better wrap this up now. Um, thanks all for your time this afternoon. Pleasure. Uh, fascinating, fascinating season still to come, I think, on and off track, and probably until about March next year. So we'll be back soon with the next podcast. Um, do make sure you subscribe, and we will see you then.